Welcome to Hoopsology. My name is Justin Goodrum, and along with Matt Thomas, our goal is to bring you quality basketball content from all over the hoops world. Before we jump into the show, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast to receive our latest episodes from journalists, authors, athletes from all over the basketball world. If you have a comment or question, please email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Now enjoy the show. He is a writer for ESPN's Undefeated, and he is the co-author of John Thompson's autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. We welcome Jesse Washington onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Jesse? Everything is good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. And I wanted to just have you on the show because uh, Matt and I, we're, we're 35, and growing up, you know, John Thompson, um, even though he was towards you know the latter parts of his career still a big part of not only college basketball but sports um and just reading this synopsis based on the autobiography just really wanted this to have you on just to pick your brain just about his career on and off the the court and with john thompson i think he mirrors um, a coach that I hold in high regard, Eddie Robinson from Grambling State University, just in terms of his, um, not only his sports accolades, but also his mentoring of young men. So the first question I have for you is just how you became involved with this autobiography and just the creative process in creating this book with him. Yeah, thanks for asking. So coach was looking for someone to write his life story. He and his family specifically, coach has three children, uh, John, who, as we all know, coached at Georgetown after his dad, and then Ronnie and his daughter, Tiffany. So as a group, they were looking for somebody, and I happened to be the one who was chosen. But even when I was chosen, I knew that I could get unchosen real quick. You know, just because I was in the game didn't mean that he might not bench me if I didn't produce. So as the process unfolded, we met for several hours a week, you know, two and three days at a time, probably two, three hours at a session. And he had more topics and themes that he wanted to address rather than incidents and and stuff like that. And I had to come up with questions to tie it all together and fit it into a format. So that was the creative process right there. But I mean, really what it was, was I got to listen to Coach John Thompson for two years tell me about life, about his life and about the meaning of life and about basketball and education and and, uh, upliftment and helping others to better themselves. So it was really a privilege for me to be involved with that. What is something that you learned from John Thompson that you didn't expect going in? He's a very larger than life figure, but there was there anything that coming out of that um, creative process of writing the book that surprised you or even shot you? A hundred percent. His influences were really surprising to me. Number one, some of the most profound influences on his coaching were black women who were not coaches, but were teachers, starting with his mother, who was a trained teacher, but wasn't allowed to work in that profession because this was the 1940s and 50s and DC was segregated. So she had to clean houses and scrub floors for a living. And then he had several black women who taught him, who were instrumental in teaching him how to deal with young people. And so much of his coaching philosophy came from them. Dr. Anita Hughes at the University District of Columbia and Sametta Wallace-Jackson, his sixth grade teacher. So for him to say that these women had as much influence on his coaching as these names I'm about to mention to you, who also surprised me because I had no idea that his two biggest mentors as a coach were Red Auerbach and Dean Smith. Like, it just escaped me. It's not something he publicized all the time, but... These were dear friends of him. His coaching DNA came from Red Auerbach, 
who he knew since he was like 14 years old. And so it just blew my mind to find out how he became Coach Thompson and the, and the people that poured into him to, to get him to be the man that he was. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry about that. Um, what You mentioned him having these these educators, these these black women that were so influential to his coaching style. How was he, I guess, what lessons did he learn from them and how was he able to translate that into, um, you know, young, hormonal, rambunctious, you know, college days men. We, we've all been there, right? How, how was he able to translate the lessons he learned from them maybe and make it, you know, digestible for college men? Absolutely. So I'll tell you one of the biggest characteristics of Coach Thompson was his protectiveness of his players, his willingness to hide their faults. These young guys are under a microscope that most other 18, 19, 20-year-old college students are free to just screw up and then go on about their lives. But these guys, because they're athletes, because we put them on a pedestal, because they make money for the university, are under a microscope. And their every flaw is magnified. And Coach Thompson sought to protect that. So let me take you back to Coach Thompson in the fifth grade. He was at a, a Catholic school in DC and he had a reading disability and could not read in the fifth grade. And the nuns expelled him. They said, sorry, mm. uh, the word that they used for him, which was an unfortunate relic of that time, was retarded. Mm. I mean, this is one of the most brilliant minds of our time who was not recognized as such by his teachers. So he went to Harrison Elementary School, Sumetta Wallace Jackson in Washington, D.C. And what she did was she, number one, said, oh, you're not stupid. You just can't read. And then she held him back a year. But when she held him back and made him repeat the sixth grade, she protected his feelings from everyone else. Coach Thompson said, hey, I was the biggest kid in school. It, it was obvious if I was going to come back, it had the potential to be very humiliating for me. But she shielded him from that. And that really goes on to connect to how Coach Thompson shielded his players from the scrutiny and the unfair accusatory nature of the media and of campus and things like that. So if his kids had academic problems, Nobody knew about it. He wouldn't advertise it. If he had to suspend a kid from playing because of bad grades, which he was quick to do, he would tell the trainer, put a knee brace on him. <laughs> you know. So that's one mm. way of many that he learned from these people how to deal with young people. So then his master's degree uh, leader at the University of District of Columbia, Dr. Anita Hughes, what he says that he learned from her was how to translate you know, there's the X's and O's of teaching, and then there's all the intangibles, how to deal with young people, how to encourage them, how to get them to open up, how to incorporate your racial identity into the curriculum. Sound familiar? You know, Coach Thompson incorporated his racial identity into his coaching. So these are just, you know, some of the ways it goes on and on. I encourage everybody to read the book. The beginning of the book before he became John Thompson is fascinating to me because it's like the blueprint for building this titan of education and uplifting. Speaking of, you know, building into Coach John Thompson, did he discuss with you, did, did he have a knowledge at an early age that he wanted to get into coaching? When did that really kind of, that, that light come on that he knew that was his calling? It was exactly the opposite. He never mm. intended to be a coach. He wanted to be a teacher. That was his plan. He grew up surrounded by these teachers. And also he was very much influenced by 
three youth counselors at the number two boys club in Washington, DC. Number one, Mr. Jabo Kenner, Mr. Bill Butler, and Mr. Julius Wyatt. And these were people who mentored young people, worked with them, encouraged them in school, helped them. It didn't have anything to do with getting scholarships, you know, or helping them to go pro. They cared about them and their community as people. That's what he wanted to do. So he had a degree in education, undergraduate at Providence, and then a master's degree. And when he he finished playing with the Boston Celtics, he said, I'm done with basketball. I'm going to go teach. And he worked as a youth counselor for city programs in Washington, D.C. And then the local high school, one of the local high schools, St. Anthony's, said, oh, we got this basketball star here. He's been a champion at every level because at that point he had been played on one of the best high school teams in Washington, D.C. history. He had won a national championship with Providence and he had won the NIT, which was the national championship. And he had won two championships with the, with the Celtics and he was an educator. So St. Anthony was like, hey, why don't you come coach the, the basketball team? And he did it sort of as like a part time gig. And then something clicked and he said to himself, hmm, I can use basketball as an instrument to teach. I can help educate these kids by using the game as a tool, you know, as an instrument. And that is how one of the greatest coaching careers in history began. Uh, fascinating. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how Coach Thompson shielded his athletes and my mind immediately goes to, of course, like the modern era and with nowadays athletes share everything. I mean, uh, well, not, not all athletes in fairness, but a lot of athletes will, will just let you know what's going on. Uh, and there's intention behind that. And there's oftentimes great profit and benefit from that too, uh, in fairness. What did, did Coach Thompson tell you anything specific with his feelings on the social media era um, and the current state of, um, I, I guess, just athletes building their own brand and, and using social media as a tool? Yes. Well, number one, Coach said in his book, and to my knowledge, he's the first big time coach to come out and say this point blank. He said, pay the athletes. He said, the mm. old model doesn't work. This is before NIL jumped off and everything. He's like, man, these kids deserve more of the percentage of the money that they generate. Now mm -hmm. he was quick to say, don't act like they don't get anything because the value of an education is, is quite significant. But so let's make sure that they get more than they're already getting. They deserve a share of that money. So let's start there because Coach Thompson said again and again, I'm a capitalist. I'm not ashamed of making money. And if I make it, it's mine and I earned it and I'm going to keep it. Mm -hmm. So he would be in favor. And, and he sort of talked about it a little bit, but he was number one, a master marketer and understood marketing extraordinarily well. He understood that these kids generate money just by going on the court. You know, there's a story in his book is one of my favorite parts where he gathered them around at practice one day. He said, all right, so, um, you know, let's think about this. Here's my Nike contract. You guys want to see it? He brought out his Nike contract. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, he had a, a guarantee to be the highest paid coach in Nike stable. This is in the 80s. And mm -hmm. he passed it around. Go ahead. Look at it. Look at it. And he said, now, check this out. I'm the one getting paid and you guys are wearing the sneakers. You guys, are, I wear dress shoes to the games. You guys wear Nikes, but I'm getting the money because you guys are marketable. So think about that. And then he said, according to those who were present and to his own recollection, 
Now tell me why none of y'all blankety blankers have ever asked me for any of this money. <laughs> Does this sound like a man who would try to prevent his players from capitalizing on their influence? No, he would have been like, go for it. Now he would have been monitoring that social media. And if anybody did anything stupid on there or embarrassing, he all hell would have come down on them. So he would have taught them how to do it. He would have walked them through it and encouraged them to market themselves because that's what he did with Georgetown. You know, people forget as one of the first high profile Nike coaches and, and I'm 52. So I remember this very clearly, but Georgetown University and the Hoyas made Nikes hot before Air Jordan. Now, coach is careful to say Michael Jordan did more to popularize it and took it to a bigger level than anybody else. But it is a fact that before the first Air Jordan hit the shelf, I myself, as a young kid in the city, wanted Nikes because Georgetown wore them. So that's how I think he would have dealt with this era. Jesse, I want to ask you about um, coaches similar to John Thompson in this day and age, because I, I feel like they're a dying breed and honestly don't really exist. Um, of course, you'll see college coaches, though, They'll say the right things in terms of mentoring young men, but honestly, their words are hollow. Do you, is there any way do you, in your, I guess, insight in terms of getting coaches to focus on what they're doing with these young men in terms of growing them into better people? I mean, we realize, hey, especially with their name and likeness, being able to capitalize on that, that, you know, money's going to be more of a factor, but there's also, life skills that has to be taught besides what's going on in the basketball court. And I feel like a lot of coaches, you know, Matt and I are from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we've seen just the cycle of coaches rotate for the Lobos and just seeing them struggle from both the basketball and football ends. And not only the struggles on the actual sports performance, but then mentoring their, their athletes as well. So I guess my question is to you is what is it going to take to kind of really turn the tide in terms of what coaching, what coaches are actually supposed to do in terms of mentoring young men these days? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you, you brought that up because there's a, there's a lot to this. And so this might take a minute to work through it, but um, number one, I do think that there are a lot of coaches who really care and who do pour into their players and who do care about teaching them life skills and educating them and making sure they get degrees and turning them from you know, young men into grown adults. So I do think that there's a lot, but then the pressure to win has never been more intense than it is now. And that's because there's so much money involved and winning means money. And these universities won't stick by coaches that don't win. And then you have to roll in the fact that everybody cheats, okay? Yeah, I said it. Everybody, all the best programs oh, are getting <laughs> are, are paying players yeah. under the table. Easy. I mean, yeah. use your Googles. You know what I'm saying? Some of them are on tape talking about paying players and are still coaching. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So clearly the priorities of the university are on winning and not following the rules and things like that. So that so in order for a coach, that sends a clear message to the coach. Winning is the, from the university and from the NCAA as a whole because their punishment is selective, mind you, that winning is what's most important, not educating these kids, not graduating them. Then another aspect of it is that the, NA, the NCAA enforces all these picayune rules against these little teeny schools while the big ones cheat with impunity and just skate off into the NCAA tournament or on TV. So the message overall, it doesn't create an environment where a coach can keep his job if he doesn't win year after year after year. Tubby Smith, 
the second black coach to win a national championship, third, I'm sorry, um, won one his first year, and then they ran him out of town a few years later. You know what I'm saying? Because he didn't win enough. They fired Coach John Thompson's son after a couple of years. Coach Thompson's son went to the Final Four his third season and, and won eight Big East championships, and he got fired. So I think it's hard for these coaches to hold on to their jobs. And so then their priority is winning. And then let's talk about something else. And then I'm going to get off of my little rampage right here. <laughs> but <laughs> college basketball coaches is still a predominantly white profession. I think about roughly 30% of college division one men's basketball coaches are black. And they had a bumper crop of hiring this year. So it might have nudged up a little bit. Now, in addition to all of these other problems that we've identified, I do think there is a cultural disconnect between some of these coaches, not all, but a lot of these coaches don't really have a way to connect with these kids. And then the kids are a tough case now. You know, this is another aspect. The kids will transfer at the drop of a hat. I mean, you got kids transferring in the layup line. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing in the middle of the season. They'd be like, yo, I'm transferring. And they'll go directly to another school in the middle of the season. Yeah. And so how do you coach in that environment? And so then I think that some of these white coaches lack the cultural competency to effectively connect with these guys in addition to all these other financial problems and trying to keep their job. I mean, why is it that we see all the black assistant coaches charged with recruiting? And then the white guys who are the CEOs, you know, so it's a multifaceted thing. And I think that these are some of the reasons that go on. And I, I'm going to credit a lot of the coaches that I've been speaking with since this book came out with illuminating some of these issues. And then the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, there are a ton of John Thompson, of, of coaches in the mold of John Thompson at the grassroots, gra real grassroots community high school, even a little bit in the AAU. But that level, I think you see real servants of the community. I think you see people who are doing it to help kids and not for the money. And, and people have asked me in the course of, uh, since this book came out, who's the next John Thompson? I think there are thousands of them whose names we don't know, who work with kids for little or no money just to help kids who have been influenced and are following in the foots of John Thompson. Thanks for bearing with me with that long answer. No, no worries at all. Thanks for elaborating on that. And I completely agree. And I do see some improvements seeing, you know, Jawan Howard come back to Michigan, Penny Hardaway. Um, if you want to even go the football route with the, I think Jackson state with Deion Sanders, just, I think we're, we're starting to see that, but I guess my fear is that, you know, as they get greater success, like Jawan Howard in particular, even Penny Hardaway, they're rumor for NBA jobs immediately. So it's just yeah. one of those things. It's, and you know, it's, not every black coach is going to pour into their kids either. Yeah. Some of these black coaches don't, don't care. They just care about winning and the money too. Sure. You know, and it's hard, man. I mean, this is a lot of money we're talking about. Jawan does seem like a really good guy who cares about these guys, but then at the top level, you know, the level that Georgetown operated at, if you stay in school for four years, you're a bum from a playing perspective. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. You're perceived to not really have the talent. The, so Jawan is trying to get kids who are going to be in school for less than a year. Mm. How much can you really get your hands and mentor somebody? These kids are like, if Jawan has a successful recruiting class, they'll all go pro, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. immediately. And so it's not really about educating these kids anymore. The days of Patrick Ewing insisting that he's going to stay for four years and graduating with a degree are gone. 
You know, that would never happen. Now, Patrick Ewing wouldn't even go to college. You know, he'd go to the to the G League or overseas and make, you know, and make millions before he or he might go for a couple of months. So it's a totally different paradigm. But I do think that Coach Thompson would adapt. I do think Coach Thompson would be successful because there are some people who care about what he cares about and they would meet up and win games and produce great people. Jesse, I have to ask while we're on the topic, you know, with players now having the ability to make money um, off of off of these endorsements, um, do you see this as a starting point where things may get less corrupt, potential for less of teams paying players under the table? Or do you think just simply that there is still money involved, you know, we're going to still see about the same level of, of corruption? Hmm. That's a great question. I had not thought of that. You know, I think cheaters are going to cheat. I think the urge, to win is, <laughs> the urge to win is always going to be. And also, let's not, like, a lot of these kids are surrounded by people who want the money, you know, who solicit the money, who sell these kids to the highest bidder. You know what I'm saying? So, so mm-hmm. I do think there's going to be some of that, but I do think it will. There's more legal ways for kids to get money. There's also more avenues for the kids to make, you know, they don't have to go to college. What I think is really going to happen with the pro, and this is not an original thought. I'm really sort of summarizing and synthesizing the tons of conversations that I've had with other college coaches, the things that Coach Thompson has said. I mean, you could read it in the book. He said pretty soon the best kids aren't going to go to college at all. They're not going to need to, you know? So I think you're going to really take out that, that top 50 you know, that top 50 group of players, they're going to have so many other options and they're not going to be in college basketball for very long, if at all. So then I think that it'll even out. You know, I think that the rest of the talent will even out. Kids will stay longer. More kids will get degrees. I mean, look at Baylor. Baylor had a lot of older guys when they won it last season. You know what I mean? And uh, and so, you know, I think it's probably a good thing. And I think that there will be, I hope that there will be a little bit lessening of of the cheating, but I don't think that it will totally leave until the players are allowed to really share in the revenue that they generate that TV money. Like they got to get some of that until they get some of that TV money. You know, they're still going to be operating many of them in an exploitative environment. And then things have a way of resolving themselves in that respect. Mm. Do you think the name and light likeness, that's recently afforded the players is kind of like the carrot that the NCAA needs. So in terms of, in their perspective, it's like, Oh, well, they're making money from sponsorships. We don't need, why we need to pay them. They can make millions off, you know, endorsements somewhere else. Isn't that kind of like the worst nightmare? Cause like you said, the players are still getting exploited. Nothing's really changed. They're, they're basically able to just get sponsorships, but the colleges are still exploiting them. So I exactly. feel like it's, it's, while it's a good thing, the colleges kind of get away with not paying their players. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's, it's give them, break them off some chump change. Yeah. You know, it's like back in the day, man, all the black artists who were making all this great music and then the record label would give them a Cadillac and keep the publishing. And so the record labels are still making money off of these songs and the Cadillac is in a junkyard somewhere five or 10 years later. And, and the, the person who produces the product has nothing. I mean, exactly. shoot, we, we watch, we watch old games on TV all the time. You know, they're still selling these games. Shoot, go ahead and try to make a documentary and use some old NCAA footage. Who's going to get paid? The NCAA is going to jack you for five figures for using two minutes worth of of footage from some 
second round NCAA game 20 years ago and the players get nothing. So, you know, I think that it's it's the, the NCAA is just trying to give up as little as possible and hold on to what they got. And um, and I think it's greed. I do. And I think it needs to change. Could you see a mechanism where players, maybe this is, you know, something that social media creates, uh, kind of sort of protest going to college and instead opt for like the G League or Europe more often? Um, is is there any sense that, that that might be a mechanism to combat some of this corruption? Or at the end of the day is having, you know, Texas on the Jersey or Georgetown or, you know, that university name, is that a little bit too much for the players to overcome? No, I think that more and more of them are going overseas to the G league or to overtime elite, right. Or to the professional collegiate league, which is started by David West and, and, so, and Ricky Vellante, an attorney and some other enterprising young men. So there's, you know, other countries have kids go pro at age 14. I mean, shoot, Luka Doncic was playing, pro ball at like 16, uh, Ricky Rubio. So other countries have this mechanism, not only for basketball, but other sports where they, you know, skim off the, the cream of the athletic crop and they're professionals from an early age. If that's your route, you know, cool. I don't have a problem with it. Um, like Coach Thompson says in his book, um, money never stopped anybody from getting an education. As a matter of fact, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that these other options are not really going to you know, the NCAA has a good uh, model for making money, for raising the profiles of their schools. It's for publicity, for building the brand of colleges in the United States. The NCAA tournament does as much for that and the football stuff does as much for that as any ads that you can get in the mail. And so I think that all these other options are great and valuable and going to develop an ecosystem outside of college. But it's going to take a lot to sort of crack that model that they have. They claim to be starting another committee now to study it, to give a recommendation to reform college athletics for the umpteenth time. I'm not going to hold my breath. But I, to answer your question or to reiterate the answer, I think that, you know, all these other options in the overseas and the G Leagues are not going to fundamentally alter the structure or the corruption of college sports. Um, Jesse, before we let you go, I wanted to get your opinion on an article you wrote for the Undefeated, and that's in regards to the NBA switching their basketball. Now, for I think a lot of fans or casual fans, they might think, hey, this what's the big deal? This is a basketball. But this is pretty significant. Can you kind of go into detail why this is such a big deal? It is not just a basketball. This is the sphere of life I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, man, this is, this is like, this is these – you know, a lot of basketball players are artists and this is their instrument. And so the feel of the ball, like I'm a hooper, you know what I'm saying? Like I was getting my shots up today. And so the feel of the basketball is so important. And so to change the basketball is a big deal. And so, um, you know, I think basically what, what me reading between the lines of my reporting, nobody came out and said it, but Spalding had been the official ball of the NBA for many years. And then the, their, their contract came to an end and the NBA wanted too much money to renew. And so Wilson was like, ha ha, here we are. And Wilson just so happens to make the most popular basketball in the United States right now, which is the Wilson Evolution. And the reason it's popular is because you take that sucker out the box and it feels nice. 
you know, now an NBA ball is a different type of animal. It's the only ball that's 100% leather and it has to get broken in. So you and me would pick up an NBA ball out of the box and be like, man, this thing feels like a, a, a piece of plastic. But once you break it in, it's the tool of the best players in the world. And so the NBA switched over to Wilson. And I have played with both basketballs, the previous NBA ball and the new one. And I detect a slight improvement in the new Wilson NBA basketball. I have mm. to say that, um, which which uh, I didn't get the ball until after the story came out. So that, okay. you know, that was that's some late breaking exclusive information. <laughs> but now, nah, man, I mean, for for those of us like the cool thing about basketball, as opposed to some of these other sports, is that it's so so many fans have a recreational relationship with basketball. You got old guys at the YMCA, such as myself, you know, playing. You got people on the playground. You got leagues. You got kids. And it's like, you know, a 50-year-old guy can't go out and play football, you know, tackle football. And 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 flag might be dangerous itself. <laughs> you know, you might get some baseball. You know, you can't really play fast-pitch baseball, you know. And so our relationship with the basketball, and if you think about it, we use everything else that the you know fans use all the other stuff that the NBA guys use the shoes, the socks, the shirts, the shorts. But the basketball is sort of the last frontier. So I guess Wilson is trying to change some of this. It was just a cool little bit of hoopology of of super <laughs> hoop nerd type of uh, story. One of the cool things about working for the undefeated is I get to do stuff like that. For sure. Well, Jesse, thank you very much for joining the show. Really appreciate appreciate your insight on John Thompson. Um, please let our viewers and listeners know where they can find you on social media and anything else you're working on the rest of the year as well. Yeah, man. Well, uh, you know, I've been chilling off social media for a minute, man, just trying to exist in the real world. But I'm at Jesse Washington on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm sort of slowing my posts down a little bit. Um, and uh, and but basketball season's coming up and, and I have two children playing college basketball right now. Shout to Corinne Washington. Boston University. Shout to Coltrane Washington, Drexel University. So when they start getting some highlights, I'll be back on them Twitters, you know, repping the Washington family. Um, And uh, I'm excited about a next book project, which I can't reveal, but you guys will get the interview when when that's announced. Um, And just check out, you know, I I work with so many great, talented people at The Undefeated, theundefeated.com. So drop by there, check out some of the stuff that we're writing about sports, music, culture, everything Black. It's a great place to go for all types of content. You know, check it out. And and that's where you can find your boy writing as well. Thanks. Awesome, Jesse. We'll really enjoy the chat. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys, man. Peace.